Star Wars, The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly, read by Alec Bowles. Han Solo's Revenge 10. The Millennium Falcon had found sanctuary by a small lake in a shallow valley high in the mountains beyond Amud's spaceport. Coming down the ramp, Spray was pleased to discover the previous night's windstorm had deposited no snow. He found Chewbacca assembling an interesting collection of tools and equipment, including a metal tripod with telescoping legs, spools of light cable, supports, clamps, ground spikes, and a small sky-scan sensor unit. The skip tracer inquired about the purpose of it all. With a few gestures and growling in his own tongue by force of habit, Chewbacca made clear to Spray what he was about to do. In order to give them added protection, the Wookiee was going to mount the Skyscan sensor on the ridge line above them, where it would give a much wider area of surveillance than the Falcon's equipment, surrounded by this little valley, could. But, but when will you be back? Spray asked apprehensively. The Falcon's first mate stopped himself from snorting derisively. The Tynan had borne up well since the emergency landing and pulled his own weight, assisting in repairs and preparing meals. It wasn't Spray's fault if he wasn't used to survival living in wilderness situations. Chewbacca made a quick motion with the tripod, as if spreading it and digging it in, and slapped its mounting plate, as if setting the sensor unit in place. The meaning was obvious. He wouldn't be gone long at all. But what about them? Spray wanted to know, meaning the herd of grazers moving up the slopes from a lower valley into theirs. The shambling beasts went at their usual slow, imperturbable pace, feeding on scrub, rock lichen, and such spring grasses as were exposed, their antlered heads rising and dipping as they carried on their endless ruminations. Several herds had passed through the area, neither showing any interest in the Millennium Falcon nor any hostility towards Spray or Chewbacca. The Wookiee spread his hands to show that the grazers presented no problem. Some of his equipment he tucked into the floppy carryall held against his right hip by his ammo bandolier. The rest he tucked into the loops of a tool roll, slipping it over his shoulder by its pack straps, then took up his bowcaster. Checking his weapon's action and magazine, he set off. And watch out for those things, Spray called through cupped hands, pointing aloft. The Wookiee looked up. As often happened, there were some of the pterosaurs of Amud. Huge, long-beaked reptilian soarers, circling in search of prey. But, though they were usually to be seen singly or in pairs, Perhaps a dozen of them were now quartering the sky. The Wookiee looked askance at the skip tracer and shook his bowcaster, snarling significantly. It was the soarers who would be well advised to take care. He set out again, his big shaggy feet carrying him over the rocky ground and occasional patches of snow. His burden bothered him not at all. He made good time and was soon leaning into the ascent to a high point on the ridge line. Atop it was a wide, level area 
and beyond the ridge was another, broader valley ending in a narrow pass. When he topped the ridge, Chewbacca spread out his tools and sat himself on a flat rock to begin assembling the sensor unit's tripod. Once the mounting plate was locked into place on the tripod, he looked down to check on the starship. He couldn't see spray, but that was no surprise. The skip tracer was on the opposite side of the ship from the main ramp. What made his features cloud was the closeness of the herd of grazers. Their main flow plodded within 20 meters of the freighter. Though they showed no inclination to investigate or molest her. Two, this herd seemed far larger than any of the others. Its leaders were well on their way to the pass, yet its end wasn't in sight. More and more grazers were making their way up from the lower slopes, but the calves were staying well to the center of the herd's mainstream, with the bigger bulls tromping along in the lead and on the flanks, and the whole group appeared orderly and moving leisurely. Satisfied for the moment, Chewbacca returned to his work, running a check to ensure the unit was charged and functioning. When a distant thunder reached his sharp ears, his head snapped up at once. The grazers, so quiescent and unthreatening a moment before, were now in stampede. So far, they were sweeping wide of the falcon, but the herd began ranging out, the front of the stampede widening as Chewbacca watched, becoming a sea of shaggy backs and a forest of antlers. The soarers were making sweeping dives in along the leading edge of the stampede, emitting eerie wailing sounds. The Wookiee wasted no time speculating on whether the flying things had started the stampede with air attacks to cut out weaker or slower grazers. Snatching up his equipment, he took in the surrounding terrain, searching for some shelter. More grazers were galloping up from the lower slopes and the stampede gained momentum every second. The animals were no longer lumbering, clumsy shufflers. In flight, they were six-legged powerhouses, the smallest adult among them weighing four times what the Wookiee did, traveling at high speed with a formidable impetus of fright. But the narrow pass was already choked with struggling grazers, and as Chewbacca watched, the excess began to mill in a tossing of antlers and fill the lower valley. He put down his equipment and prepared to run, only to discover that he was already cut off. The grazers were flowing around the high point he had selected, avoiding its steep incline on their way to the lower valley. A quick glance told him that the beasts were still avoiding the unfamiliar bulk of the Millennium Falcon. But if the backup from the pass reached that far, their reticence could change. The Wookiee hoped that Spray would have the sense to use the disabled starship's weaponry to keep the animals from damaging her further. By that time, of course, the grazers would be all over the ridge. They would start forging up the steeper slopes as soon as the pressure of the bottled herd grew great enough. He held his bowcaster and took stock of his situation as objectively as he could observing the animals below and the terrain around him. At length, he decided that to try to work his way through the herd, or even run with them, would be suicide. They were aroused and in panic now, 
and would be quick to attack any outsider among them. On the other hand, he broke off in mid-thought as a shadow passed over him and a wailing cry warned him. He hit the ground rolling, clutching his weapon to him. Broad wings hissed through the air over him and sharp claws closed on nothing. The soarer swept onward, leaving a carrion reek in the air, screaming its frustration. A second behind it tried a swoop of its own. The Wookiee came up onto one knee and threw his bowcaster up to his shoulder, lacking time to focus through the weapon's scope. There was the high twang of the bow, a simultaneous detonation as the explosive quarrel crumpled the soarer's wingtip. The flyer veered, crippled. Chewbacca fell backward, jacking the foregrip of his bowcaster to recock it and strip another round off its magazine. He got two more shots into the predatory flyer as it half fell, half flew past him, putting yawning wounds in its ribcage. The creature tumbled dead on the wing. It came down among the stampeding grazers and in a moment was gone from view, trampled into a shapeless mass by hundreds of hooves. Another soarer had glided in, sheared off when it heard the explosive quarrels and come around for another pass. Chewbacca realized now why the soarers had come together in such numbers for the migration of grazers. The stampede through the wild mountain country would inevitably produce casualties, leave behind the weak or injured, and, too, strand refugees like himself, ripe pickings for the airborne pack. The soarers' primitive brains had recognized the chance for a feast. The Wookiee brought up his bowcaster again and carefully sighted on the oncoming soarer. It stooped for him, claws open, long, narrow beak wide with its cry. He centered it precisely in his scope and fired directly into the gaping maw. The top of its bony skull disappeared and it nosed down at once, plowing into the ground. He had to jump back out of the way as the soarer's corpse, seeming to collapse in on itself, slid to a stop where he had stood. With two of their number down, the soarers were more cautious about approaching the ridge. They tilted membranous wings and put distance between themselves and whatever mysterious thing had killed their companions, searching all the while for more approachable prey. Chewbacca stole a look back down at the valley. The press of grazers at the pass was backing up toward him quickly. Even now, a few of the beasts were pausing to mill around the lower part of the ridge. The Wookiee fired several rounds into the ground there, blowing showers of soil and rock into the air and sending off the terrified, bellowing grazers. But the swirl of the backlogged stampede moved more animals in toward the ridge again. They were too scared and too stupid to notice the cause of the explosions of a moment before. He would never hold them back, even if he had unlimited ammunition. A tremendous racket, rising over the cannonading hooves, came from the Millennium Falcon. It was the ship's distress signals, hooters and klaxons combined with flashing lights, designed to attract the attention of searchers in case of crash or emergency landing. Apparently, the grazers had begun to get too close to the ship, and Spray had resorted to this to save her. It was good thinking on the skip tracer's part. But Chewbacca knew 
he could look for little else in the way of help. He doubted if even the starship's guns could clear a secure path through the massed herd. A soarer's cry sounded, and he spied the creature rising from the cliff across the valley, bearing what looked like a stunned or injured grazer calf. The Wookiee growled an imprecation at the fire and wished for a second that he, too, had wings. Then he shook his fist in the air and bellowed wildly, for a mad inspiration worthy of Han Solo had just struck him. As he worked out the tales, he slung his bowcaster and began rummaging through the equipment he had brought. First, the tripod. He clamped all three legs under his arm and got a firm grip on its mounting plate. Cords of muscle swelled in his arms and paws, and he gritted his fierce teeth in exertion. Slowly, he put the needed crease into the tough metal of the plate. When he was satisfied, he put down the tripod and began to work furiously, casting occasional glances down to the growing turmoil in the valley as it surged toward his high ground. He had, he believed, the tools and materials he required. Time was another question entirely. He threw the downed soarer's carcass over onto its back without trouble, its bones were hollow, and it had, for all its size, evolved for minimum weight. He jammed the bent mounting plate up under its chin, ignoring the ruin of its gaping skull, and fixed it there with a retainer from his tool roll, turning its screw down as tightly as he could without crushing the bone. He spread two of the tripod's legs, extending them to maximum length, and lay them out along each wing. He curled the leading edge of the wings over the tripod legs and wrapped them two full turns at the tips, exerting his strength against the resistance of the wing cartilage. There was barely any fold at all near the wing joints, but it would have to serve. He had only eight clamps in his carry-all pouch. Four for each wing had better be enough. He tightened them down quickly to hold the tripod legs in place within the folds of the wing edges. Stopping to check, he saw that the grazers were already thronging on the lower slopes of his high ground, packed tightly together, antlers swaying and flashing. He applied himself to his task with redoubled energy. He drew the central tripod leg out along the soarer's body as a longitudinal axis. The creature was an efficient glider, but its breast lacked the prominent keel to which flight muscles are attached in birds, and that made fastening a problem. He settled, after no more than a few seconds thought, on a row of ring fasteners, punched through the skin and passed around the creature's slender sternum. Fortunately, it had no more than a vestigial tail. He swallowed and tried to ignore its nauseating odor as he worked. Then came his worst problem, a king post. Taking one of the bracing members he had brought, he thrust it up directly through the soarer's body next to the sternum to stand a meter and a half out its back and made it fast to the longitudinal axis. Then he fit the longest brace he had across the juncture, securing it to the other two tripod legs as a lateral axis. He didn't fret over the various vile substances now leaking out of the soarer. That decreased the weight, which could only help. He spent 
a frantic several minutes cutting and fitting cable with no time to measure or experiment, connecting wingtips, tail, and beak to the tip of the king post. He had to pause when a group of grazers breasted the ridge, wild-eyed and quick to swing their antlers in his direction. He jammed a new magazine into his bowcaster and emptied it into the ground, filling the air with explosions that could be heard over the countless hoop falls in the valley, driving the animals back down for the time being. But the valley was now filled, and there would be no room for them below. He knew. It was only a matter of moments before a major part of the stampede covered the high ground and engulfed the Wookiee. The soarer's grasping legs probably hadn't given it very good locomotion, but they made a plausible control bar once Chewbacca had stiffened them with supports, wired the claws together, and braced the shoulders with ground spikes. Then they, too, were cabled to wingtips, nose, and vestigial tail. The Wookiee dashed around the soarer's body, tightening down turnbuckles with no more than a hasty guess at the tension needed. He heaved, fuse bulging under his pelt, and lifted the animal framework, gazing down and hoping the stampede had receded and that he would be spared the necessity of testing his handiwork. It hadn't. Grazers were literally being borne up toward him by the pressure of those below. Another barrage from the bowcaster only made them fall back for a moment. The tightly packed bodies came at him again. Chewbacca took his ammo bandolier, twisted it several times to tighten it, then slipped both arms through it as a harness and fastened it together at the front with a length of cable, hooking himself up to the framework where King Post met longitudinal axis. He shouldered the weight of the soarer and slung his bowcaster around his neck. The body slumped, but the extremely light, super-strong support materials kept it in deployment. A grazer bull with antlers like a hedge of bayonets cut in toward him. The Wookiee skipped out of the way and almost collided with another knot of the animals. The ridge was being overrun. With nothing to lose, Chewbacca churned toward a drop-off, holding the soarer's reinforced carcass at what he hoped was the correct angle of attack, and launched himself. He wouldn't have been surprised if the wings had luffed and, with no lift at all, he had gone tumbling into the stamping, snorting mass of grazers. But a caprice of the strong air currents along the ridge flared the flyer's wings, bearing him along on an updraft. He began to yaw, the soarer's beak moving to the right, and pushed hard on the creature's braced claws to bring its nose around into the wind once more. Even so, his makeshift glider's sink rate was appalling. He raised his legs behind him and tried to distribute his weight for better control. He nosed up in an instinctive effort to get more lift, caring little about speed. He had flown powered craft of a design based on these same principles, but this was an entirely new experience. He nearly stalled and only barely got moving again. Then a strong updraft off the ridge caught the soarer's wings, and a moment later, he was truly flying. And for all the terror of unpowered flight, deadly panic of the milling grazers below, 
reek of ichor dripping down cables and supports from the soarer's corpse, the Wookiee found himself roaring and howling in elation. He started to dip the soarer's nose, but the experiment with pitch nearly sent him into a neutral angle of attack and an abrupt descent. He instantly foreswore the exploration of new aeronautical principles. Body-centered, he made minor corrections and did his best to recall the devotional chants of his distant youth. Below him, grazers thrashed and pushed, strident and frenzied. But the Wookiee now had the sound of the wind in his ears. The other soars steered well clear of this new and bizarre rival. It was large and strange, and therefore not to be trusted. Chewbacca estimated that he was making better than 30 kilometers an hour and suddenly realized that he had but one problem, getting down alive. He had angled toward the falcon. The last of the herd had passed it now, and the freighter seemed to be intact. But his makeshift glider wasn't so inclined, and he found that any decrease in speed threatened to rob him of the lift that kept him aloft. Gradually, though, he cut back on both, bringing the soarer's nose back toward a neutral attitude, and brayed happily as he spied a good landing spot. The little mountain lake grew before him. He thought for a moment that he was about to overshoot it and began to experiment with a turn, hunching forward and pulling the soarer's bound claws back toward himself. He didn't quite have time to conclude what went wrong. The next moment, Chewbacca and a splayed carcass were gyrating toward the lake's surface. He caught a split-second flash of his own reflection before it parted for him with all the soft receptiveness of a fusion-formed landing strip. The curt slap of the water galvanized him, though, helping him overcome the numbing cold. He fought to untwist himself, only to find that the soarer didn't float well. Its wings settled around him, and the weight of the metal framework bore him down. Reaching and wriggling, he still couldn't release himself from the improvised harness that held him to it. The bowcaster around his neck only complicated things. He became snarled in slack cable, and his giant strength meant nothing against the cushiony persistence of the lake water. His breath too much to retain, began to escape his lips in silvery bubbles as the Wookiee fought to free himself from the sinking glider. It became hard to see, and he found himself thinking about his family and his green, lush homeworld. Then he realized a dark shape was circling him, making quick motions and weaving in and out among the tangled rigging with a sure ease and suppleness. A moment later, the falcon's first mate was being tugged toward the surface of the lake, which came at him like an unending, flawed mirror. Chewbacca broke into the air and drew a breath with such enthusiasm that he found himself choking on it, splitting and coughing and mouthing salty, wookie expressions. Spray got around behind to support him swimming with deftness and agility despite the pair of heavy cutters he held in one hand. That was fantastic, gushed the skip tracer. I've never seen anything like that in my life. I came after you when I realized you'd overshoot and land in the lake, but I never thought I'd reach you in time. 
The land just isn't my element. He pulled at the Wookiee's shoulder to get him started. Stroking for the nearby shore, Chewbacca decided he felt exactly the same way about the sky. 